Let's pray as we come to this part of God's word and and the start of our Roman series. Now, great God, we thank you that you uh, not only speak, but you speak so powerfully, so clearly, and in a form that reaches all nations all the time. We thank you for your holy word and for your Holy Spirit that illuminates this word into our, our hearts and minds. And we pray for that work to happen now, that your Holy Spirit will penetrate hearts that might be resistant to you, our minds that have certain habits and customs. Uh, Lord, overwhelm those things and help us to see afresh you and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Olympic Games is a pretty unique event in which it seems to me almost all of the world is happily gathered together for a few days, weeks. The opening ceremony in particular is quite a celebration of our common humanity, And the games remind me, with all the historical, political and racial tensions that go on the rest of the time, that the nations under God actually have a lot in common. And the competition is usually so close. I imagine if God wanted to say something to get all of the world's attention, the Olympic Games wouldn't be a bad way to go. Billions of viewers tuned in via a telecast in hundreds of languages. If God were to address the world... With one word, what do you think that word would be? What do you think he might say to heal the nation's brokenness, to straighten their corruption, to see the poorest looked after, to see a great lift in the happiness measures, to give nations a healthy ethical compass, to give a new health and balance as they care about economy and employment or environment? to lift all nations into the blessing our Creator offers. If God were to address the world with one word, what do you think he might say? Well, today's passage in Romans leads me to think God's one word would be Jesus. Or to make this more personal, to the desperate woman sitting at her kitchen table, still brokenhearted by an affair that happened six years ago, strained to the breaking point with her kids uh, and, and her shattered dreams, the wine bottle empty next to her and her head in her hands. What would one, God's one word to her be? Jesus. To the Christian dad run off his feet with work, feeling like he's failing as a husband, failing as a father, failing as a son, failing as a brother and as a friend. What would God say to him? Jesus, to the chronically ill, working hard to endure and bear up under their pain-filled, disappointing, restricting circumstances. Jesus. In these seven verses, the emerging word is Jesus. And the 16 chapters of Romans that we're about to dive into, most of them in the next six months, seem to be squeezed potently into these seven verses of greeting. God's word for the world, his kind word for each soul in the world. From God and Paul's perspective, this, if you're following the outline, this is my, that is God's first and Paul's subsequently, my good news, verses 1 to 2, concerning my son, verses 3 to 4, for you, verses 5 to 7. The big what would God say question is answered with a who The what is a who. It's Jesus. 
Look with me at verses 1 to 2, my good news, reading from verses one, Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The first word of this 16-chapter letter is the striking word Paul. This, I take it, is, uh, is Saul's, Saul the Jew's common way of introducing himself to non-Jewish audiences, like my Korean friend Pilsoon uh, introduces herself uh, in English as Priscilla, or my Mongolian friend Thauga introduces himself as Luke. One of the Jewish experts in Israel's law, this humbled Saul writes as Paul, the slave, the servant of Christ Jesus, verse 1. Now, a few things to note. Paul may be nothing in himself, identifying himself as a mere servant slave, but he does write with the authority of the living God, the God who bears the name Christ, Messiah, Jesus. And notice he says Christ Jesus here rather than the usual Jesus Christ. I take it to emphasize this Jesus of Nazareth's royal office and divine authority, the Messiah, Jesus. And so just as Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah were servants of the Lord in the Old Testament, so too am I. And his name is Jesus. I'm not a self-made man. I'm not a self-appointed cult leader, a religious leader, a self-made theologian. I'm a messenger of the Lord, says Paul. And in Paul's words, he was, verse 1, called to be an apostle and set apart. Um, another rich Old Testament word, meaning he's consecrated for the Lord's use. Now, set apart for what? Well, his words are brief. And the, 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 the article there, the definite article, isn't there in Paul's Greek words. Set apart for the gospel of God becomes the more forceful still, in Paul's words, set apart for God's gospel. Paul and a handful of others were set apart by God to tell the world what on earth God has just done in the person and work of Jesus. It's an enormous responsibility and privilege. Now, some wonders need explanation, like the ruins of the, the Roman Colosseum, or how and why the pyramids were built, or five-day test match cricket uh, matches, five-day test uh, matches. And you know, some people, uh, for some people, five days standing around in the baking summer heat, uh, hitting and chasing a ball, or watching others do that is considered a waste of time. Some wonders need explanation. Some people just don't get it yet. <laughs> but more seriously, Paul was set apart for the most significant news imaginable. News that affects billions of people, billions of eternal souls, over thousands of years. And this word gospel so casually rolls off our tongue. But it is God's extraordinary, global, eternal word centering on what God himself is doing in his universe in sending his son into it. So this letter to the Roman churches was written around 57 AD. That's less than 30 Odd years since Jesus died, rose again, appeared powerfully to Paul some time later. 
and began building what is now a rapidly expanding movement across the Roman Empire. You know, the Sydney Olympics were just 23 years ago. 30-odd years isn't that long. And the dust of God's coming is, of course, only just starting to settle throughout the world and in the empire on planet Earth. Paul's role in God's hand is to get that news out, to explain to churches here and in the empire's capital of Rome itself what all the events, the claims, the healings, the chaos in Jerusalem, the spreading church is all about. That this Jesus is God's word to their world then and now. Now, I don't know if you've seen these smarty pants people at uh, social events or birthday parties. You ask them to take a photo, and instead of taking a photo of you or a group, while pretending to do that, they mostly take selfies instead and then give the phone back to you with a smile. Paul won't do that. He puts himself into the letter at the beginning to get the letter going and make it comprehensible. Who's writing it? But as soon as he's in the picture, he steps aside as early as verse 1 of chapter 1 in his letter for Jesus. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, there it is, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. There's only room for one on the servant of the Lord's stage, and it isn't the servant. I really hope you've come to this point in your life, this point of a happy resolve in your life, that while the world says that your life is about you or about your kids, it's so liberating to realise it's not. We're not worthy of that self-absorption, self-devotion, self-interest-seeking. Introspection is exhausting. Materialism is disappointing. To be a servant of Christ, servant of the Lord, is deeply healthy. His burden is light. His hope springs eternal. His resources vast. What about verse 2 then? I don't uh, pretend or, or tend to be a big movie promoter. Hollywood and Netflix are hardly seeking to feed disciples and don't need my promotion but I did like and even purchased Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> the trailer is pretty cool, and there's even a Lego version of it, which matches pretty exactly what happens in the, the real trailer, scene for scene. I prefer you don't search it up now, but it's, uh, it's worth searching on your way home if you're not driving. A trailer's purpose is to, of course, build anticipation without giving too much away ahead of the film's release. And for all kinds of marvellous reasons, God provided many trailers for Jesus throughout the Old Testament over many centuries. In the Judges sermon we heard last week, David pointed to just one example where Judges hints at the problem like Romans is going to do in the coming chapters, that humans in ourselves have a great problem. Uh, when, in, in the word of Judges, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit, the great problem. And yet just over the page we read in Ruth and then in 1 Samuel that an anointed one, a king, a son of Jesse, a David figure is on the way to save. 
In this and countless other examples through the scriptures, verse 2, this momentous news was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. None other than God could provide so many trailers for the coming one before it is released. But the true and living God can and has done exactly that. He established a nation. He ensured prophets were recognised and their words carefully preserved and rightly understood as holy, verse 2, scriptures. Did they have a unified message? Yes, they did. The Quran on my bookshelf reads like a compilation of disjointed accounts and teachings. But the Bible on my bookshelf presents promises following a clear, unfolding account of how those promises were going to be and then were fulfilled over 1,400 years. And what is its unified message? It's this good news. And it is verses 3 to 4 concerning God's Son. The gospel, point two, concerning my son. The gospel regarding his son, verse three, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who the spirit, through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there's a lot here. Allow me to begin with the summary at the end of verse four, where Paul just brings it together and says, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we'll visit some of the detail in verse 3 and 4. When God the Son arrives, the messenger is the message. And the message is the messenger. The messenger is King Jesus, and the message is King Jesus. The Messiah King has come to save and know and love and communicate to his world. When the disciples see their great teacher come sacrificial lamb, come risen Lord, walking on the water, they say, who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They are awestruck by both messenger and message. The message being, the saving God is in our boat. God the Son is teaching his world that God the Son saves. He saves temporally and physically, but he also saves spiritually and ultimately. Ask the fishermen, what's the good news? And with eyes and hearts full of wonder, they'll simply point to Jesus. The good news is right there. He's here. Creator in creation. That's the good news. The what would God say to the world is answered with an almighty who. All of the what of God, the big questions we might have is so kindly, compassionately, gently, physically, historically, not discovered by clever people, but delivered by a compassionate person. The greatest message, this gospel at the heart of the universe, that God enters into his world to save it, is brought to us literally with the laughter and the smiles, the meals, the life lessons the blood, sweat, and tears of God himself. The master communicator, of course, he personally delivers his own good news, in part because his message also involves bearing the sins of the world personally, in the flesh. He brilliantly achieves the very good news he's delivering while delivering it. 
more than a perfect mouthpiece. He's the sacrificial lamb of God for the sins of the world. And so God the Son has not just a mouth, but crucifiable flesh and a body that can be risen to create the new humanity. That's the big picture of verse 4. Jesus Christ, Messiah, our Lord. Each word precious to us in that summary. To see the credentials that make Jesus Jesus Christ our Lord then, we look to verses 3 to 4 to some of the detail. Jesus was, verse 3, as to his earthly life, a descendant of David. In other words, he's not just a person, but in the people of God's messianic royal line. Tick. Born with the blood of kings in his veins so that the world would one day, according to God's holy promises to Israel, somehow have an eternal king reigning over an eternal kingdom by being Israel's king first. That was the obscure, exciting oracle that Israel had kept hearing. How would it be fulfilled? Nobody knew. Not the prophets foretelling it fully understood. Not even the angels, says one Peter. Not until the mid-first century AD, the, the time of Christ's apostles trying to say what happened through letters like Romans that we're reading today. Paul's announcing it, explaining it for the first time to the world. Yes, as a human in King David's line, but at the same time, verse 4, he was through the spirit of holiness appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Verse 4 isn't a contradiction to verse 3, but complements it. Literally translated, verse 3 says something more like, he was according to the flesh, and verse 4 says, according to the spirit. So it's a nice contrast there. According to the flesh, Jesus was clearly this. According to the spirit, Jesus was clearly that. Jesus Christ, our Lord. In verse 4, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was raised from what would otherwise have been a sad, humiliating death and a complete anticlimax to God's purposes through the Messiah. In 1 Timothy, you might remember from the series, Paul summarised the gospel and he wrote that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. And so in both letters, Paul says the Spirit of God confirmed the Nazarene's legitimacy and raised Israel's condemned Messiah. Vindicated the word Paul uses in 1 Timothy, but approved, appointing, designating the word he's using for Jesus as the, as the Son and therefore the Lord here. Many of you would have seen um, C.S. Lewis's uh, line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, or read the books. And I take it Aslan's resurrection in the Narnia series is Lewis's attempt to help the world grasp the significance of a risen, sacrificial saviour king with the curse and death shattered to fulfil an ancient deep truth. At the rising of the new humanity's new Adam, God wants us to have no doubt. The one I raise is my son, Jesus, Messiah, your Lord. And friends, if Christ were not risen, it would be more forgivable to deny his deity, his godness. 
But God assures us it should be evidence enough. It is evidence enough. Even for our most skeptical friends, it should be enough. And so Spurgeon writes, what could be more important for a believer than the glorious fact of Christ's resurrection? What could bring more rejoicing than this great truth established beyond doubt that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead? May our church, DPC, be a community swept up by Jesus, the center point of history and life itself. Life as in existence, but your life as well. May we be impacted by Jesus and Paul after him, who sacrificed the things of earth to speak more freely to it. And if God is awaking you today with a vision of what is most important in his world, I'd plead with you not to resist that vision. Truly live with it. You may well say in 2030, 2040, that 2023 was a really big year for you. Peter Jensen mentioned yesterday, 1959 changed everything for him. Your sense of identity, your purpose, your marriage, your household. In 2023, some stubborn scales fell off that I'd been living with. The resistance broke down to God. The long-held foolish goals were finally put aside. That destructive habit I'd been living with finally addressed. The new chapter of life as the Lord Jesus' sincere servant actually began. Satan and your flesh and the world will say, don't do it. It's just religious talk. Don't listen. And so, friends, as we work through Romans, starting today, let this gospel of Jesus shape your resolve and set your direction. Your own pride will want you to say, want you to miss the point entirely and say, steady as she goes, I'm quite good enough already, thank you very much. I'm getting on okay. As though this was more about you than responding to the wonder of Jesus. No, the Christian life is invigorated by each of those four words. Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's word to the world then, Jesus, comes through my gospel concerning my son and thirdly for you. Paul continues in verses 5 to 7, Through him, Jesus, we, the apostles I take it, received grace, God's undeserved kindness. Peter, you remember, he deserted Jesus. Paul hated and killed Jesus' followers. Yes, we received grace all right. And we received apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Most literally, Paul says here he's calling all Gentiles, non-Jews, to the obedience of faith. And the NIV, I think, smooths it out and expands on it a bit to say what is true. The obedience also that comes out of faith. But that's not what Paul strictly says. It's probably a both end. The obedience of faith itself, expressed narrowly, which leads into all kinds of faithfulness. But Paul is saying, more literally, it's the obedience of faith itself. A long-term friend of mine lived all of his life quite opposed to God. He lived with very loose sexual ethics that caused much grief to his wife and kids. Um, He pursued money and the pleasures he could buy. He was always quite open to discussing God as he um, 
usually with skepticism and mockery, but we'd talk about it. But he became more open to discussing God as he approached his death following a diagnosis. Some kind and bold Christians gave him a last chance to make peace with God. He said, oh, I couldn't do that now after a lifetime of rejecting him. It would hardly be right to come to him now and say I need his help. Was it pride stopping him all the way along? Was it pride stopping him at the end? Even if he didn't come to Jesus on the basis of grace and forgiveness, he could have still come to Jesus purely out of obedience. God says, recognize Jesus. And yet to the end, my friend seems to have said, I will not. For whatever reason, I will not. C.S. Lewis didn't feel like coming to Jesus, but he had to bend to the truth of Jesus. Obedience, submission, surrender. They're important words for us as disciples. Such a surrender and embrace of the gospel honours Jesus' name like nothing else. When people start trusting Jesus, they start speaking well of him to their friends and family. Households and congregations praise him privately and publicly. And notice the initiative, the agency, all of the praise belongs to God, verses 6 and 7, for what he kindly does for us. Verse 6, and you also, Roman churches, DPC, are among those Gentiles who are the called ones, literally, it's an adjective, the called, who belong to Christ Jesus. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Loved by God, called to be his people, people he calls saints, his holy ones, a prayer for grace and peace upon churches just like ours to enjoy his grace and peace. Such blessings would really benefit Olympic stadiums, nations, a distressed woman with her head in her hands, the overly busy man, the sick and tired who are sick and tired of being sick and tired. A childhood and church friend of mine uh, went to study at Bible college thinking a new chapter of life for God. Partway through her studies at college, uh, she loved engaging with the Gospels and the Psalms, but one day she woke up and her legs weren't working. Everything changed for her as the degenerative illness became known and accepted. And yet many years on, she still is a glowing witness to Jesus' grace. And she has in her heart the relief of God's peace. Grace and peace, shorthand for the sum of all the gospel blessings. God's grace, God's peace, through God's word for the world. Jesus. Well, let's call on him now in prayer. Let's pray. Our great God, what else can we say to you but thank you? You thoroughly deserve our lives and our awe, our praise, our devotion, our surrender, our obedience. Father, forgive us for all the ways we haven't done that, the way we've held back, uh, the way our vision of you has been so poor, distracted, disinterested. And we pray, Father, that this gospel message, centering on your son, your word to the world, would enliven us. Uh, We thank you for the life it gave to our brother Peter, who spoke yesterday. 
through all of those decades of ministry. And we pray that would be the testimony of us as well in our workplaces, in our homes, in our church and family life. We pray for the help of your spirit, the spirit who raised Jesus, now working powerfully in us, who will one day raise us to eternal life. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.